from Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to Hollywood Unscripted, yet another Stuck at Home edition. I'm your host, Scott Talal of the Malibu Film Society. And today our guest is Broadway and film producer, writer, director, hedge fund manager, sports team owner, James D. Stern, whose newest film is the Sundance Audience Award winning Giving Voice. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So stuck at home and knowing your passion for sports, this has got to be the worst. There's nothing on TV except old games. Yeah, it's tough, you know, and I'm here with my son, who's as big a sports fan as I am. So it's definitely been, um, <laughs> it's had its challenges. I think we've been watching a lot of the show Survivor because that replicates sports about as much as anything <laughs> on television <laughs> right now. And of course, we've been watching The Last Dance a bit, which for me is sort of like watching home movies because I'm, you know, so steeped in the bowl and I made a movie at the same time on the Bulls as well. So Yeah, you did a documentary on Michael Jordan, if I recall. I did an IMAX film on Michael, which is the reason why The Last Dance got pushed, which is a funny story. But I was approached by some financiers to produce and co-direct that film. And I went to the NBA and they said, well, we're already doing a film. You know, we're already doing this other thing they've been shooting all year. I said, well, they're different markets. And they said, well, you know what? You're right. If you guys shoot the last five games of the regular season as a test and show it to us, we'll make a decision. We did that. And the NBA said, you know what? This is really timely. And let's go with the IMAX one. Let's put the other one on ice for a bit. And that's what we did. And then the last dance comes out during the pandemic and it becomes the biggest thing in the country. So it's funny the way these things all work out. Yeah. So how are you actually coping at home? What's keeping you busy? Well, I write, which is keeping me busy, and I also have a lot of projects which are in the process of either being finished or preparing or, you know, so I'm fine. You know, outside of sports not happening, uh, we did a, I did a film called Murder Mystery for Netflix, which was very, very successful with Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston, mm-hmm. and we hope one day to do another one. But the timing of that is obviously going to get impacted by this. But other than that, I got lucky. If Giving Voice was about to start at South by Southwest instead of Sundance, it would have had a bigger impact on me. Fortunately for me and for my team, the film did go at Sundance. It did win the Festival Favorite Award. The distribution is now being finalized. So I guess I'm less impacted than some are. Talk to us about what's happening with distribution, because right now it's anybody's guess as to what's going to happen with theaters reopening. What does it look like the path is going to be? Um, I cannot say yet what the distribution path will be, but it will be finalized in the next week. And uh, it's a place where we had hoped to be. But it's, look, I have a very dear friend who worked on a film for two years that was premiering at South Park, and he just got obliterated. Yeah. It was like flipping a knife up in the air. You could either catch the handle or the blade, you know, for people who had finished films. And what happens, how do we come back from this? I think that film will have an easier time. I think Broadway will have a very, very, very hard time. Right. And I'm developing a Broadway musical of the film Silver Lining Playbook, which I'm very excited about. I think that fortunately, we have a far enough road to go that by the time we're ready, it should be okay but i keep on thinking how would you feel if you were a girl from the north country which just got these glowing fabulous reviews it becomes sort of the, the favorite to win the tony award to have a huge run it opened basically a week or two weeks before everything hit and then the show gets closed down i mean that's going to be very tough and you know when you look at broadway and how much it's impacted by tourists coming to New York in addition to people needing to be able to sit within close proximity of each other. And you have a perfect storm of very difficult industries. So that, theme parks, I mean, these things are very hard. 
In the film world, you know, I think that if you're ahead of the curve in terms of working with streamers, you're probably okay. If we had sold our film, for instance, giving voice to a distributor that was not a streamer and that deal had already been done, that would be very tough. Right. So let's talk about giving voice because this is a film that marries your two big passions, filmmaking and Broadway. Yes, that's right. It's a documentary. And while you've produced a lot of features, when it comes to documentaries, you like to step behind the camera. Yes, I direct the docs. I started as a director, period. The reason why I started going towards docs was sort of twofold. The first was that I was asked to do that film on Michael Jordan, which I had a particular knowledge about, so I was the right person. It was funny because I, I found that I was quite good at it, although my background had been all in terms of writing. I come from theater, where the word is everything. So I started doing docs. When I, when I started my company, it wouldn't have been right for me to go off for nine months unchecked and direct a feature. Plus, I was raising two kids. So the combination of those things meant from a directing standpoint, what I could do was a documentary where I could go, shoot, come back. I set up an edit facility in the office so I could be producing features while I was directing docs. I like it so much that it becomes quite addicting. And as far as giving voice is concerned, you know, that was sort of a glorious situation. I got a call from Costanza Romero, who was August Wilson's widow, and she had seen a prior film of mine called Every Little Step, which was shortlisted for the Oscar, which was on the creation of the show A Chorus Line. And she asked if I would like to come up to Seattle and talk to her about doing a documentary about the competition. Thousands of kids compete every year to learn a monologue of August Wilson's all over the country, and they compete for the chance to go to Broadway, essentially. I was intrigued. I was a big fan of August Wilson's work. I knew the plays. And I went up and we just talked for a long time about how I could do something like that that would not be... It was a competition film, but not a competition film. A competition film, but also a film that talked about what the process of writing was, what the process of giving voice to people who are now in a different time period than when the plays were written. Mm-hmm. And we decided to go forward and Endeavor Content graciously stepped up to raise money and to put their own money in. And, you know, once we got Viola Davis stepped up and Denzel Washington agreed to do an interview and then John Legend ultimately saw the film and wrote this gorgeous, amazing song for it, which I think is going to be the anthem of the year called Never Break which is astonishing. Yeah, it speaks to so much more than just trying to be on stage. That song is going to be everywhere eventually. For you, after University of Michigan and then Columbia for the MBA, it was Broadway before movies. So Broadway, you did the original stop. I did. And then some revivals, Sound of Music, The Producers, Hairspray, Little Shop of Horrors, Legally Blonde, just to name a few. Those are not revivals, though. Those are original. I mean, Sound of Music is a revival, but The Producers is original. Hairspray is an original. They're Mm -hmm. based on films, but that's it. They are original shows. Right. But then you did make the jump to film by producing and directing All the Rage and the cast alone for a first-time director. We're talking Joan Allen, Jeff Daniels, Robert Forster, Andre Brower, Anna Paquin, David Schwimmer, Josh Brolin, January Jones in her first film before Mad Men. Yes. Gary Sinise, Giovanni Ribisi. I mean, this is... It was crazy. It was was really crazy. I mean, a genius of Mary Vernue, my casting director, who's, of course, went on to become as big a casting director as there is in the world. I, I... I look back and it's really a who's who. And um, it was a film that was very important to me. You know, I co-wrote the adaptation. You know, I wasn't credited for that, but I co-wrote the adaptation and I directed it. And I think that Gary Sinise, you know, sat me down after watching me for about two days. He said, why don't I take you to dinner? I'll teach you how to direct. (laughs) And he did. He was so gracious. And I've stayed, you know, very, very good friends with Joan and with Jeff Daniels, who I've worked with several times since. It was a really difficult, glorious 
crazy situation. I think that because I had done as much as I had done on stage, I had sort of a certain amount of credit. And I think that because the film is about even back then, you know, the proliferation of guns and even those comedy, how they could get used badly in the wrong hands. I think people also wanted to participate. So it was a combination of things. And one of these days I'll go back and I'll rewatch it. I haven't seen it in a long time. <laughs> but it was a real trial by fire, a real baptism to filmmaking. It was such a trial by fire. But one thing I will say is I really, really knew how to work with actors from all my time in the theater. What I did not know was how to make a film. But I really knew how to write, and I knew how to work with actors, and I'm very, very natural in an editor room. So I had all that going for me. You know, I didn't know a damn thing about what shots to use or how to set up a shot or what the hell to do. And I look back now and wish that I had known more. But that being said, I was very sure of myself in terms of what I wanted from actors and how to articulate that to them. What was most surprising to you at the time, other than Gary Sinise taking you to dinner and saying, here's how you direct? <laughs> a couple things. First of all, how charitable and generous the actors were with me. That was really surprising and necessary. The way in which, and I knew this from my experience in the theater, but to sort of see it from a film standpoint, to see how someone like Jeff Daniels worked from the outside in as a more technical actor versus someone like Giovanni Ribisi, who worked so much from the inside out as a much more of a method actor. And how that translated to screen was really astonishing to me. I mean, because I was very used to talking about motivation and talking about all the sorts of things that we talk about on stage. And finally, you know, Jeff took me aside and said, tell me what you want. I can do anything you want. I can get mad on any single line you give me, any single word you give me. I cry. I can laugh. I don't care. Just put aside all your motivational stuff. Just tell me what you want. And I'll never forget that. And he's so, he's so good. He's such a great actor that he can do that. You know, mm -hmm. others can't. But I mean, to see the difference between the two within one script and one shoot was really, really interesting. A few years after that is when you decided to found Endgame Entertainment? Yes, I uh, left Chicago and I came to L.A. and it was shortly after, in fact, it was immediately after. I landed in L.A., I think, like September 9th of 2001. So 9-11 hit like two days after I'd been here. And the industry ground to a halt and I had time on my hands to figure out what I was going to do. I was just, at that point, I was here to direct and I was getting sent on a lot of projects that were very similar to It's the Rage, which I thought, well, I don't want to do that. And why do I want to even be competing for these projects when I just did one? I came from the world of the theater where you did not pigeonhole. I mean, you know, the tradition in the stage is repertory. You do a comedy, you do a tragedy. I was used to bouncing from one thing to another. For me, I do the diary of Anne Frank and I do, you know, <laughs> the producers. I mean, you know, it's like I, I didn't know from being pigeonholed. So I thought in order to sort of be able to do what it was that I wanted to do and have freedom, if I could raise some money and have my own company, that's something I was interested in doing. And because I had done the producers in Hairspray and Stomp, which had been just such giant hits, I had people who financially believed in me. I also had a notion that you could have a company which was both financial in nature and also creative in nature and combine them in the same place. And at that point, there really had been a shop that was doing one or the other, but not both. And so Endgame started as a shop that would do both. You mentioned repertory, and you certainly brought that to Endgame. In your first big year of releases, 2004, you have everything from the movie that relaunched Neil Patrick Harris's career. I love that film. Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. And then you also released Hotel Rwanda. Yeah, and I love them both. I absolutely love them both. It used to drive people crazy, and people on my staff would say, we're not being branded. No one knows what we want. And I said, well, I know what we want. I want things that I want to see. My 
credo was, I will make a movie if I want to go pay money for it twice. If I can say that I will see a movie that I will want to go see twice, then I should be able to do it. That's why I started a company. We're not a genre company. We're not a serious company. We're not a comedy. You know, we're going to do what we're going to do. And to the extent that I adhered to that, I was successful. You know, when I departed from it, I was less successful. The repertory approach really went out into left field, I think, with I'm Not There in 2007, the Bob Dylan biopic. Well, but I'm a huge Dylan fan. I mean, I'm a Dylan fanatic. So for me, that was exactly right in the middle of, <laughs> of the repertories. You know, one of my great thrills, and I'll never forget it, was just being on set with Kate Blanchett. And she'd be talking to me, and then she'd turn around, and she was, <laughs> she was Dylan. <laughs> I felt like I would have been deeply disappointed if I had not been part of that film. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the one beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkcocom slash a moment of your time. So when you did Hotel Rwanda, obviously that got a lot of award season love. Then you did it again with an education, which I understand almost didn't happen. You had some last minute casting changes. Had some last minute casting changes. And, you know, at that point I was financing films based on foreign sales. So you put together a cast and then you took the script and the director and the cast out. Foreign sales companies would give you a number that they were pre-buying. So the way movies were put together is... I think that an education was not an expensive film, but we had about a two to three million dollar exposure against the U.S. based on the numbers we were getting from Forum, plus any kind of tax benefits. Mm -hmm. So once the cast fell out, the foreign sales guys were off the hook, and they said, "Well, we're not going to guarantee these numbers anymore." Because all of a sudden, I ended up with Alfred Molina and Dominic Cooper instead of Orlando Bloom, who was coming off of the Lord of the Rings movies, and I believe Jeffrey Rush was in the other role. I have to check my memory on that, but I think it was Jeffrey Rush, and he was coming off of something large. Also, so the numbers have been way up. So we were about three weeks out from shooting when we were replaced, and I all of a sudden was flying blind because you know, the way in which I ran my company was I was always wanted to make sure that I wasn't overly exposed to any one film. So all of a sudden I was overly exposed to that film, and that said, I had never walked away from a film in my life. I had never said that I would do something and then did not do it. I mean, in a way, because I was small, that became sort of my competitive advantage. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I did. And in that case, it, it obviously worked out gloriously. Well, it proves the producer's job is to figure out a way to turn a no into a yes. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I should say about that project, which was really interesting, is Emma Watson had wanted to play the lead. Mm. And she had auditioned for it and had given an absolutely brilliant audition. The director wanted Carrie Mulligan, Lone Scherfig, and I said, okay, provided that we had the other cast, which is the Sarah Orlando Bloom and Jeffrey Rush. When they dropped out, I'm sitting with Carrie, and if I would have had Emma coming off of Harry Potter, I still would have had the foreign sales. 
but I supported her. And so in that way, the risk was rewarded. She was brilliant. She is brilliant. She was brilliant. She is brilliant. She, you know, she was nominated for the Oscar. And it's one of the great performances you'll ever see. Mm. And Lone knew that. So I think that a producer both wants to turn a no into a yes. But at that point, I was both producer and studio. And a studio head's job is also to manage risk. So I had both sides of my brain sort of in conflict sometimes. The artistic side just saying, yeah, let's roll the dice. But the other side saying, let's stay in business. In that case, I did roll the dice and we did stay in business. Now, that same year, you delivered a speech to the LA Film Festival on film financing. Yeah. And for anybody who loves the process of making movies, look it up. It's on Google. You can find it very easily. It is a great read. Thank you. And you were talking about that while Netflix was rising at that time with this distribution, which originally you didn't believe in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was a really smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> but you accurately predicted that they would be migrating into streaming. Well, first of all, the other was unsustainable. I mean, I knew Cindy Holland very, very well. I'd done a film with Cindy. I spent a lot of time with Cindy. She now runs television for, for Netflix. And I thought that she was completely brilliant. And I was a big believer in her. So I thought that they had a plan. You know, the, the thing that I said back then, I said two things which I try and think about today, and it's harder to think about them today. One of the things I said was, don't look at every blip as the future. Don't look at every blip as a trend. It's a blip. It's a picture. It's a snapshot. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be forever. In our society, we are very used to seeing snapshots and thinking that they will never change. You know, the country will never go back to where it was. Donald Trump has destroyed the country. He has changed the equation of America. That may ultimately be true. That's for historians to say in the future. We don't know. But I don't think that that's necessarily the case. And I think that, you know, in in today's world, um, where people are very, very, very nervous and concerned about their futures, it's something to, to think through as well. The other thing I said was, if you don't love what you're doing, then don't do it. If you're going to be part of our business, then the love better come because it's, it is not a business where there's consistency. It's not a business where you can count on tomorrow. So the love has to get you through. From my standpoint, you know, I was prescient enough on streaming to get into streaming early. And so that's been a help for me because I did the discovery. I did Last Chance You. I mean, I did, I did things a few years ago before people were all trying to run towards Netflix. And that was a help. And I think that it almost started really when I did a documentary for HBO, when I really started thinking like, you know what, there's a different way to sort of think about things. Aside from your sports documentaries, you did a documentary in 2006 on Fox News Channel. So goes the nation. Oh, right. Well, that was on the Bush-Kerry election, right? And certainly the way in which the media impacts how we understand politics and elections and, you know, in the everyday is a big part of that. And I think that one of the things that I, I say, and so goes the nation, and certainly repeat in American Chaos, which is a film that I made about Trump running against Clinton, although much less about Trump and Clinton, and much more about the people who are Trump supporters, is that in today's world, we see things through the prism of what we're listening to. Whereas in the old days, there were three networks, maybe four if you counted PBS. And so we all got the same information. It may have been couched a little bit differently. Maybe ABC was a little bit more to the right and CBS was maybe a little bit more to the left and NBC was a little bit in the middle, but they were all talking about the same thing. Today, they are not talking about the same thing. I mean, it's, the numbers are just astonishing. They were saying that something along the lines of 90% of Democrats agree that we should wear masks outside and 40% of Republicans. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 
that's crazy because that's just science. And yet the prism in which we're, because the people who are Republicans are, are only watching Fox News. They're not watching anything else. This is a big issue with me. I know that your brother worked with the Obama administration. I mean, politics are in your family, in your blood. Todd was first the staff secretary for President Clinton, and then he was the head of climate change for Obama. I just sort of hack around. He, he does the real stuff. Hmm. So we've talked about the movies that you've done. What about the movies that you've not done? What about the ones that got away? <laughs> oh, boy. I don't think about things that weren't really offered to me, right? So... In, I can only point to one film that I could have jumped into and didn't for a specific reason, but it ended up becoming one of my favorite films ever made, and that's The King's Speech. Mm. And now The King's Speech, I mean, to be slightly fair to me, when it was presented to me, the script was quite different. And it read much more like, you know, sort of a BBC, sort of stayed British. It wasn't jumping off the page. A lot of what happened ultimately happened with improvisation between you know, the two great actors. But I mean, it's also, I think there were financial issues with, I had done proof with the Weinstein Company, the ways in which that worked out financially were complicated. So it would have been the same thing with this. And I would have had to really swallow hard. So I mean, those, those, there were reasons not to, but man, what a great film. What an absolutely beautiful jewel of a film. How has that changed your perspective on what comes across your desk? I think it reminds me to have faith in myself. Because it's not like I didn't love the story when I read it. I did. I mean, I think that the bigger lessons for me are the movies that I've made that I should not have made. Those are bigger lessons for me than what I did not make. I mean, outside of King's Speech, I can't really think of anything that was like that I really could have done and didn't do and I regret. I mean, on the other hand, there were a few instances of movies that I should not have done and did. And in all three instances, I think I was chasing what I thought was going to be higher returns and not listening to my artistic gut. I mean, we all have, we all have core competencies and people's core competencies are different. So some people's core competency is how it is making money and they're really good at it. And they, they operate within a bandwidth that allows them to do that. My core competency is I'm really good at making things well. And if I do that, they oftentimes make money. In the case of something like Looper, they make a lot of money. But um, in the case of, you know, most things in education, whatever, they, they still make money. My core competency was not, you know, say, making a genre film. I did two of them. I shouldn't have. I made a raucous comedy that I knew was going off the rails quickly. It was clear to me it was going off the rails. And I knew it. And I thought that I could fix it. And I couldn't fix it. Mm. And so I got myself into a situation where I was at odds with the creative team, which I never was in any film I've ever done before or since. But I put myself in a bad situation because I should have said, you know what, I know we're here, but I'm not the right guy for this now. And I should have stepped away and taken whatever money I had put in and taken it as a loss and walked away. Instead, I hope did not walk. So circling back around on current projects, giving voice, going to Sundance, this is not your first dance with Robert Redford. In addition to the discovery, you had also done The Old Man and the Gun. Yes. And then I understand you guys had a conversation about American chaos and next thing you know, you've got a film in contention and walking away with the audience prize. Yeah, I, it was, um, he's incredibly generous. I mean, one of the great nights of my life was that he wanted to have dinner with me when we were doing Old Man with a Gun and it was just the two of us and his assistant. And, you know, we just talked for like a couple hours, you know, and uh, he was interested because of American Chaos and So Goes the Nation, which I had done. And he was interested because of my brother and 
Todd's work, especially because he's so interested in the environment. And we just talked about stories and, and politics for a long time. It's one of the few times in my life that I was nervous going to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and I also understand you've wrapped on lists and have you now finished up on post on that? Uh, yes. I mean, basically, yes. I and mean, I think that it's Mike Cahill who is a brilliant director and a better friend and who I, I love, like brother. So Mike is, you know, poshing around a little bit because he's home and, and the movie's not coming out for a little while, but we're done. I think the film is great. It's Owen Wilson in a way you've never seen him. It's, it's a film where it's either about opioid addiction or it's a, a simulation and you don't know which. And it's Owen and it's uh, Salma Hayek and I think it's extraordinary. No, I'm looking forward to seeing it. It sounds like an intriguing story. What are your final thoughts on where we are and what the new normal is and and all of us still being stuck at home? I think several things. I think that we will find a way to get into production. I think that if you look at what the NBA is doing, um, which is my other passion, I believe this year that they will create a bubble city where you know, teams will go and they will be quarantined for 14 days and they'll be tested and they will compete in an arena without fans. So that's what the NBA will do and that, and they will finish their playoffs maybe the last few games of the season doing that. And that's either going to happen, I think, probably in Orlando, at Disney World, or it's going to happen in Vegas, something like that. I have no, you know, inside information, by the way. I'm just reading tea leaves like anybody else, but I, I think that that might really happen. So if you take that example to production, you can do the same thing. You can lock places off, you know, you can devise ways to make movies. And I do think that there's going to be a way to treat this. You know, look, even today, if people all wore masks and they're all tested, you get 80% of American workforce back tomorrow. It's just the mismanagement of the administration that's this caused that to not happen. So on the same basis, if you put together a production where you have people tested, quarantined, shoot in a kind of bubble situation, you can make film. Not, not today, but within six months. Now, that, that's the start. The second part of this is how are films released? What is the situation with the end user? There's no question that theatrical was exceedingly compromised, if not broken, before this happened. The only films that were attracting a younger audience were the larger franchise movies. So the films that say my dear friends at Sony Classics were releasing were attracting an older audience who were still going to the theater. But when that older audience starts to dry up, my daughter and son don't go to the theater. They watch everything at home, which means that the world is going to turn more, even more dramatically towards Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, Disney+, Plus. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. First of all, it's the present. It's not the future. It is the present. And it's hard to think it's not going to be pretty much the entire future. Now, you're talking to somebody who loves going to the movie theater. I mean, I love to go to a movie theater, get my popcorn, sit there, and, and it's a different experience. I don't answer the phone. I don't get up. People focus. You know, in the way that 1917 did that film in the service, gave the appearance of doing that film in a single shot, People always talk about how, why does it matter that people watch movies at home when technology is better and better and better, the home viewing experience is better and better and better. What I always say is because it's not about that, it's about concentration. And you don't concentrate the same way. You don't give yourself to the movie the same way. That said, that's our reality. 
And my father, many, many, many years ago, used to tell me, we don't dictate to the marketplace, the marketplace dictates to us. And that's the way this was. That's the way it's going to be even more so. And so production will come back and streaming will dominate even more than it does today. The movie is Giving Voice, this year's Sundance Audience Award winning Best Picture. And our guest has been James D. Stern, a producer and filmmaker and multifaceted and interesting human being. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Co Media and presented in cooperation with the Malibu Film Society. This special episode of the Stuck at Home series was hosted by Scott Talal with guest James D. Stern. Produced and edited by Jenny Curtis. Mastering by Michael Kennedy. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.